0: Hey, there we are. Hi, everyone. I'm Brendan. If you know the name but don't recognize me, if you're familiar with our Kids Club program, you might know me better with a cape and a top hat. Um, I have those in my office so I can put them on if it helps you. Um, But I'm a student in training for ministry here. I am glad to be here and privileged to be the one sharing the word with you today. So we're going through Genesis 15 today. Um, So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Genesis 15, and then follow along with me as I read it. I'll give you a moment near the start. All right, Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him and cut them in two and arranged their halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. A thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country that is not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves. And afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, whoever, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared above, or between the pieces, and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Canazites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you for giving us your word. We pray that you open our hearts to it and open it to our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Promises have different meanings in different cultures across the world and across time. In some places, if you gave your word and then broke your promise, you'd be called an oath-breaker, and no one would ever trust you again after that single broken promise. Today, here, our promises are considerably less weighty. In fact, if someone promises you something, you're not really reassured. You're more likely to start worrying than, why is he promising this if it's not going to be a problem? And we have different levels of promises, and as you go up them, they become a little bit more sacred, and a little bit more carefully held. We have the verbal agreement. We have the eye contact promise. We have the pinky promise. We have the handshake. We have the double handhold, lean forward, promise me, grandma promise. We have the signed document, the signed document in triplicate. We have swearing on a Bible in a court of law. And all this makes our promises actually seem a little bit more frail and dishonest because of how much variety we have, how much expectation we have or how little in the promises we give to one another. You see, the promise that God gives is held to a different standard and no human culture has ever matched up to what God requires of us. The problem with our promises is that they are made by humans and humans are weak and flawed and prone to breaking things like promises. And Genesis 15 is God's promise. All through the rest of the Bible, God will be reflecting and looking back at this promise that he made and whenever his people doubt him along the way, they are doubting this promise. And I want to tell you about three things, three reasons that we break promises. Anytime anyone swears something and then doesn't go through with it, it's one of these three things that they lack. They either lack knowledge, or they lack power, or they lack integrity. Knowledge, power, and integrity. And in this passage that we look at today, we're reminded that God has knowledge and power and integrity like no human ever could. And those are the reasons that we know he is genuinely faithful. But first, let's step through this passage to try and understand a little bit better what's happening. So here we have Abram, who I will probably call Abraham by accident four or five times here. But this is before the Abrahaming of his name. So Abraham... Abram, a childless wanderer out of Babylon, who had left his people, the Babylonians, and their gods, and traveled through Canaan and saw those people and their gods, even visited Egypt with those people and their gods. And all the while, he clung tightly to Yahweh, his God. And he did this because back in Genesis 12, God had assured him that he would take him amongst all these nations and their gods and make from Abram a new nation, and he would be their God. And all the other nations would be blessed through the nation that he made and what he did through that nation. And in the chapter immediately before this one we just read, in chapter 14, Abram's just come out of a battle. He's responsible for saving his nephew Lot and a whole bunch of other people and leads them back to their freedom. And as a reward, he's offered a great prize, a great treasure. But he turns it down. And he turns it down, the word says, because he didn't want anyone to look back at him and think he got rich off someone else's gift. He wants when people look at him and the things he has, that the only thing they see is God's blessing. So that they look at his life and they say, well, clearly his God Yahweh must be faithful because everything he has comes from him. Then we come to chapter 15, and God is reassuring Abram of that decision right at the start. I am your shield and your very great reward, he says. Then Abram's reply comes, and it seems a little bit more puzzled than doubting. Says, I don't have any kids, so my inheritance is going to go to my servant, Eleazar of Damascus. But God tells him right away that he will have a child of his own that he will have descendants as many as the stars in the sky and that God would give them the land of Canaan. And the Lord walks him through this strange ritual, this cutting of these animals in half as he makes this covenant, this promise. And even though he and his wife are too old to have kids, as far as Abram can tell, and the promise sounds so fantastically impossible, he believes it. Without question. Not a leap in the dark. He's not crossing his fingers and hoping it works out. He's just so sure that God is faithful and treats his word as if it's enough. Because God has that power and that knowledge and that integrity to carry his promises. So some promises are broken out of a lack of knowledge. Someone promises something and then later learns that there's more information they didn't understand and suddenly they can't follow through with what they said they would. For example, possibly the hardest promise to keep is the one that starts with someone asking you, promise me you won't get mad when I tell you. That is a doomed promise. Because no one would ask you that unless the thing they were about to say, of course, is going to make you mad. And when they tell you, you're going to get mad through no fault of your own because you can't control getting mad. So promise me you won't get mad? Fine. I just backed into your car. Not mad. But surprises like that change the very nature of the thing we are promising. But if you aren't surprised, if you already have all the knowledge you need about the promise, about everyone involved, about what will happen, then you can't be unpleasantly surprised. There's no shocking discovery, no untold thing that can mean your promise can be made worthless. And our God does not just have all the knowledge he needs, he is all knowing, he has all knowledge. He knows everything that can be known, what was before, what comes after. There is no action, no event, no decision, no human failing or success that can surprise him and make his promises worthless. He displays his divine foreknowledge, his knowing of things to come in this passage in verse 13 and onwards. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward... They will come out with great possessions. You, whoever, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God spontaneously rattles off what's going to happen for the next 400 years. The things that are going to happen around this promise, the children, the land, all of it. God says, everything that comes next, I know about. It is in my hands, there is nothing unknown that is coming that can change my promise. And when God promises us that he knows our sin, our mistakes, our personal evil, he's not kidding. And he says that he sent his son to die to take that away. That all we need to do is rely on his promise to be saved. It's true, and we can believe in him and his faithfulness. We can trust him because he has that knowledge of everything involved. We can trust that there is nothing that you or I could confess to him to make him stop and go back on his promise because he already knows that there's nothing you can announce to him that will rock the Almighty back on his heels to go, whoa, I didn't know that uh, this was involved. I'm out. I'm done. That won't happen. God is faithful. You can trust his promises and he makes his promises with that full and complete knowledge of all things and some promises are given and then broken because the person giving the promise doesn't have the power to pull it off see a football team can march out onto a field for a premiership game they can be the scrappy underdogs and all the bookies betting against them while the hot favourites strut around on the field looking for their third cup in a row. And they can huddle up and the captain can say to them, all right, boys, this is what we dreamed about. It's our coach's last game and I say we go out and we win it for him. And they can really mean that, but that won't stop them going out and getting demolished by a superior team. Just vowing to win it for him doesn't make it possible. You need to have the power to do it. You need to have the juice, the skill, the talent, the ability to get the job done. We're coming into state elections now, as you may have noticed if you opened your eyes in the past month or so. And elections are all about promises. Without being too cynical, the nature of politics is that The people involved must promise more than they can deliver. Realistic promises are political suicide. And so at this stage in an election, it's all about the opposition saying, well, look at all the promises that have been broken. And then the politician in power saying, well, hey, you can't blame me. I tried to get it done. I just didn't have the money or the time or the support that I needed. But trust me this time, and I'll get everything done. And that cycle is the reason that Australia is quietly famed throughout the world for being so politically jaded. There are not many countries in the world so full of people bored to tears by the voting cycle and voting options that they will put you in jail for not being involved. It is that bad. The powerless promises of our leaders have become actual jokes to us. But our God is not powerless. In fact, he has all the power. He is all powerful. And he can do anything, anything that can be done, he can do it. There is no opposing god or rebellious people or troublesome challenge that can stop him from carrying out the promises he has given. Abram was worried about being too old to have that child. And his wife Sarai to conceive that child. And when it finally happened, he was 99 she was 90, which is considerably later than traditionally we start a family. But God promised it and he had the power to make it happen. And he made it happen. He made it supernaturally occur because God has all that power. And his promises will be carried out. In this passage, he tells about his power in verse 14. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. He promises that 400 years later, he will faithfully execute justice on the most powerful nation in the world, who it's worth noting have their own whole stable of gods and their promises of protection and contracts. Abram's God pits his faithfulness directly against the faithfulness of these most feared gods in the world and the most powerful nation in the world. And if you read the account of that coming down in Exodus, you'll see that God doesn't even break a sweat. And when God promises us forgiveness, we can trust him to deliver. There is no place so far, no skull so thick that he cannot deliver the gospel there. There is no stain or crime or sin so grievous that it is beyond his ability to deal with. He will never turn away from anyone and dust his hands and say, well, I gave it my best shot. God's best shot hits the mark every time. And if you have accepted that forgiveness, if you have accepted that his son died for you, then you can have faith that he really has forgiven you and really will welcome you into the kingdom in the last days. And finally, some promises are broken out of a lack of integrity. If you have integrity, then you are the good person you appear to be all the way through. You either, if you lack integrity, then you either pretend to be more trustworthy than you are, or else you're changeable, and the value of your promise is likely to change as you do over time. Someone might make a promise and understand all the facts, and have the power to execute that promise and then just change their mind. People can be so uncertain and changing that they change their minds and just decide not to follow through on something that they have sworn that they will do. The Vietnam War, one of the saddest episodes of the last fifty years, in 1973 after relentless fighting and terrible combat in the jungles and streets and in diplomatic exchanges, the North and South Vietnamese, along with the United States allied to the South, signed the Paris Peace Accords. And that was meant to be the end of it. Prisoners of war were meant to be sent home. There was meant to be a complete ceasefire that was going to last. There was meant to be no more blood there, no more suffering between the traditional South and the communist North. US President Nixon and his agents suspected that the North would not honour this agreement. So he made a counter-promise of his own. He told the South Vietnamese that even after every American soldier left that place, that the United States would support them by replacing dollar for dollar, bullet for bullet, tank for tank every piece of resource expended defending that place. It was a guarantee of reinforcement from the most powerful nation in the world, meant to balance what they felt was a lack of integrity on the North Vietnamese. Then something unexpected happened. President Nixon was caught in a lie of his own and what history remembers as the Watergate scandal broke out. Suddenly, no one thought he had any integrity. He had been spying on his own political opponents, and then the result of that meant that his party was destroyed at the next election. Power changed hands in the American Congress, and suddenly the party that wanted to win the war at all costs was gone, and the party that didn't want to be there in the first place was in. So when the North Vietnamese did attack, when they did breach those peace accords, and the South Vietnamese called out to the United States to honour their agreement to help They got silence. Nothing. The entire character of the American government had changed because neither the Americans nor the North Vietnamese honoured their promises with integrity. The South was swallowed up and the terrible sufferings that followed are available to those of us who are strong enough of stomach to observe history. The problem of course is that nations are made up of humans and humans are false and fickle and changing. We are not the same all the way through, not all the time. We change often for the better, often for the worse. Today I might be the kind of person who will honor an agreement you make with me but tomorrow, what if tomorrow is a bad day? Maybe tomorrow I'll be different. But not our God. Our God has all the integrity in the world. He is eternal and unchanging. He does not change his loving nature or his mercy or his grace or his justice. It's all sourced from in himself. And who he is never changes. He tells Abram that what he knows will happen in 400 years And in 400 years, he will still be faithful and still holding to the covenant he has made. And we know that God's promises to us don't change for the same reason. When he says he will forgive you and make you a son or a daughter of God, he means it and means it forever and there's no taking it back. He has declared it and he has the knowledge and power to make it so. And he is a keeper of promises. And that doesn't change. He has never failed to keep up a promise. The promises are made by two sides. And at least one of those two sides is going to be human. Humans who are unknowing and powerless and changing. How does God being faithful stop us from messing up what he's done? Well, the end of this passage paints a peculiar image, this cutting up of all these animals in half. But in the ancient Near East, in Abraham's time, or Abram's time, it wasn't an unheard of thing. Abram knew what was happening. God was making a covenant with Abram in a way that he would recognize, that a man of his time would know and be familiar with. It was a sign of agreement between a person of power and a person who was powerless. Like co-signing a contract, the animals are cut in half symbolically. And for the powerless person, the one who has the least to lose, the one who the powerful person is going out of their way to help, the powerless person walks between those cut animals through the blood. And the symbolism is meant to be plain and clear. If I do not live up to my promises, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And there Abram is waiting to be called to walk between these pieces. And he must have been waiting quite some time. Early in the passage, God has him looking up and counting stars. So it must begin at nighttime. And then he waits all through the day with the chopped up offering. And in verse 11, he's been waiting so long, he has to chase off the birds that come down trying to eat the carcasses. And he chases them off till the sun sets again. And he seems to pass out into this deep sleep. And he receives God's words of promise and then wakes to witness this smoking pot and blazing torch. Now we don't know if Abraham understood the full significance of the time. I think he did, but remember when Genesis was first written down, it was for Moses' people. It was for Moses' generation who had just seen these promises enacted and borne out after 400 years of being slaves set free. And they're being led through the desert by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. So this pot of smoke and this blazing torch represent God walking through the blood of this covenant. And with that action, God is saying, this covenant, this promise doesn't depend on humans. This covenant is built on my promise to be faithful. And we see that God is faithful to that promise all the way through Scripture. Over and over, the people lose integrity. They flake away, they turn from him, and God remembers his promise and acts with mercy because the covenant depends on him, and he's a keeper of promises. And if it depended on weak, sinful humans, then we couldn't possibly keep it. And just the same for us. We have an incredible freedom to say that our forgiveness and our entry into heaven is not based on us. The cross and the sacrifice of God's son says, I'll take care of it. It's all in my power. I am not depending on you to change your life and become worthy enough for my kingdom. You just need to show up I'll change your life. I'll make you worthy. He has all the knowledge to see where it all ends and all the power to make it happen and all the integrity that no man has ever had so that he is unchanging throughout all the ages. Praise God that we can rest in him and his amazing faithfulness to save us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. You chose your servant Abram and made a nation from his people by your faithfulness. And now you've chosen your son Jesus and you've made a nation out of those who have accepted his free gift of grace. Help us to honor that. When our integrity fails, we ask you forgive us and guide us back to be more Christ-like. And we thank you that we can be called sons and daughters of God. Not by our own achievement, but because you are faithful to your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.